Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business news podcast from Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Kirk LaPointe. I'm Tyler Orton. We never want to hear this from our kids, but it looks like we're hearing it from our province. BC has just earned a D grade for innovation. That's according to the Conference Board of Canada's latest measurements. And on today's show, Paul Preston, he leads innovation policy at the Think Tank. He explains why the province's efforts to reinvent its economy in recent years they're kind of heading a bit of a wall right now. But one sector in BC is actually excelling. That's manufacturing, Kirk. Well, unlike other jurisdictions in North America, we're actually adding jobs. And Ken Peacock, the chief economist from the Business Council of British Columbia, explains why. But first, of course, we're going to talk innovation with Paul Preston from the conference board. From Amazon announcing 3,000 new jobs in Vancouver to BC companies and higher education institutes partnering up on a super cluster initiative, the province is pushing hard to become one of the most innovative in Canada, if not the most. But is it really succeeding? The Conference Board of Canada has been examining various provinces and countries, and the think tank's latest report card on innovation gives BC a D grade. Now, calling in from Newfoundland and Labrador with us today to explain this performance, it is Paul Preston. He's a director of Science, Technology, and Innovation at the Conference Board of Canada. Paul, thanks for joining us on the show, all the way from St. John's. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. So why are we a bad student all of a sudden? (laughs) Yeah, you know, a very complex picture uh, painted across the country. Um, We measure innovation indicators across the activity, the results, the capacity categories to try to create a composite picture. So within BC, there's some good news, there's some mixed news, and there's some sort of tough news as of late uh, within the indicators that we view. In particular, uh, there are a couple of areas where we see falling performance in BC, which has sort of ratcheted down the scale a little bit. Number one, scientific articles, so that stock of sort of wealth of new knowledge creation, we see BC slipping, uh, as well with ICT investments, so kind of spending money and investing in those technologies, computer systems, uh, software, et cetera, those technologies that can transform a firm, we see slippage on those indicators in particular. But overall, the biggest challenge we see, where we are improving on some indicators across Canada, the issue we're facing is other countries around the world, they're improving faster than we are. So our huh. relative position continues to slip. Is there a kind of a British Columbia ethos that emerges here, I, I think particularly around areas like labor productivity? Yeah, you know, it, it's always a, a difficult, uh, difficult measure around productivity. The resource economies like Alberta, Saskatchewan, Newfoundland, they tend to do very well when commodity prices are high. Every hour of labor their GDP impact is going to look that much better. When oil and gas per barrel is at 50 bucks, all of a sudden the productivity scores will, will sort of diminish. So we know that kind of more resource-intensive economies will have more lagging labor productivity scores. So you look at Quebec and Ontario, which are the, the top two provinces on our report card. Just They're both ahead of B.C., but they tend to be larger, more diverse economies, and manufacturing makes up a bigger swath of their sort of economic base. Because of that, manufacturing tends to spend more on R&D and innovation, which may be lifting their scores a little. So I think it's important to sort of understand that industry makeup. If you talk to the experts, they'll tell you that we do very well with regards to launching small businesses. We have a lot of early stage companies here in Vancouver. So we've got a bit of an entrepreneurial spirit here. 
And you seem to back that up with regards to your report card. But what is it about these companies here? We can start things up, but why are we having trouble getting over the finish line when it comes to these early stage companies and getting them to the next level? Yeah, so it's been an issue for a long time. And if we had had this conversation seven, eight years ago, I would have pointed to risk capital and the lack of risk capital as being the biggest or one of the biggest challenges in Canada. We certainly closed the gap there. Uh, BC, since 2011, has doubled the amount of venture capital that's available in the province. So we have seen positive moves, even things like public procurement, so government procurement of local technologies. There are are a couple of new programs that it's early stages. The Innovative Solutions Canada program, for example, it's uh, only recently announced in the past year. Early stages, the results aren't showing up yet in the report card. So I'm, I'm hoping sort of the procurement angle, the availability of risk capital will show that our firms will sort of cross the chasm, will survive and scale up and grow better. But you sort of hit the nail on the head in BC. There's sort of three real positive things that we're seeing. Number one, you get an A plus uh, on entrepreneurial ambition. So that's folks wanting to go into business to create new ventures. And number two, on people actually doing what they intend. So the ambition matching up with actually creating ventures, you get an A on enterprise entries. So you've got people who have the ambition, who are going to take risks, then you actually have them going forward and starting companies. And the third thing we see is you have your third on venture capital in our rankings. So you have that risk capital in the province but more, but just as important as the, the sort of the capital is the management expertise that venture capital provides. It's the expertise how to scale up and grow. So I'm hopeful that in the, in the coming years, you'll see sort of that conundrum of how do we get our firms to scale and compete globally. I'm hopeful that we'll see that uh, performance improve over time. You know, I was speaking to a U of T professor last week, and he noted that with regards to this whole HQ2 phenomenon that's going around with Amazon, it seems like that could be a big leech off of whatever city it lands in. And we do see that Amazon as well as Microsoft and just last week, Alibaba, they've all announced plans to expand within Vancouver. I wonder how much that really affects our entrepreneurial ambition going forward if we have a lot of these larger players coming into the city. Is Are tech sector going to get more comfortable just working for the big guys? Do you think that could be a bit of a push and pull going on with regards to that entrepreneurial ambition that we're doing so well in right now? I do see. Yeah, I I think it's a good news story. I I frankly do. You you attract kind of um, investment like that, nationally, internationally known brands like Amazon and Microsoft. I think it's a good news story for the region. And you have all those senior level people that work there that may go outside the corporate and start their own companies in the future, and they've got that deep management expertise. I think it's a good thing for the ecosystem. And we also benchmark, besides innovation, uh, we also benchmark the education system in Canada, and we know we produce very, very strong graduates in the country. So these companies are looking at Canada as a stable, safe place to do business um, with great education system that's intact across the country. So we have very, very good students and great graduates coming out of our school system. So it's, it's not a surprise they want to come here. And I do think that it bodes well for the future of BC in particular. There's no question that by moving from a B to a D in space of one year, it would give some cause to the, uh, to the, the notion that we're going to be able to, um, to basically get back to a B from a D. Is there a quick fix inside all of this? You know, I would say it's the opposite. You need this 
state, of course. So investment in the venture capital programs, investment into um, business-led initiatives, it, it takes time to move sort of the, the measures at a macro scale in the province. It's going to take continued investment for several years to see it kind of flow through our, our innovation rankings. So stay the course, keep doing the right things. I think there are some great indicators, as I mentioned, uh, for, for the province. And the, the biggest challenge we're going to have is we need to scale up our performance on innovation quicker than we're currently doing. We are improving on some, on some measures. Uh, frankly, um, things like business R&D expense in BC actually improved from about 0.7% of GDP up slightly to 0.74%. So it might seem small, but we are seeing improvements. Again, other countries, though, are just ratcheting up so much quicker than we are in Canada that the key thing for us is going to be stay the course, but, but kind of get better faster, if I can put it that way. Well, one of the interesting things that's gone on, though, just this past year, it's been a new government here in British Columbia. And I wonder if critics would say, well, you know, within that one year time frame, BC has gone from a, a B to a D. Is it really, though, the, the, the government that's having much of an influence on this? I, of course, they can have an influence on things, but I wonder how much of it really comes down to private sector priorities. Yeah, so kind of the two-pronged answer there. Number one, the data sets we use, because we get them from StatsCan and OECD, we have to harmonize data sets. They have to do that themselves. The data set tends to be a, a year lag or more. So it really, mm. the, the new government in BC wouldn't have impacted the current ranking this year. Now, next year and the year after, we would see what sort of impact that would have on the numbers. Um, so I don't see that being an issue, for, at least for this report card. Um, the second point around kind of a business challenge, I, th I think you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, it, yes, we need government supports to set the, the framework, the context, um, and there's more that can be done. But our innovation, our lack of innovation performance, is, a big part of it is, an, is inaction by business, frankly. We look at the level of business investment in R&D and business innovation, and businesses actually investing in information and communications tech, so ICT, they're lagging on both those indicators. You know, Canada is the last out of all the peer countries on a report card. We're the last on BERT, on business R&D. The only jurisdictions that do worse are the provinces in Canada. So it, it is really business inaction is as much of a culprit here. Uh, and how do we incent businesses to spend more? That's going to be a key challenge for the years ahead. Well, I, I maybe want to make our listeners feel even worse, though, but uh, <laughs> why don't we talk about who's doing really well on this? Uh, what are the different countries? What are the different provinces that are performing quite well? And maybe what are they doing better that BC could learn from? Yeah, good question. I mean, we see that Quebec and Ontario uh, on the current report card, Ontario is seventh out of the, the 26 jurisdictions we benchmark. Quebec comes in ninth. Uh, it, it's worth bearing that they are larger economies, more diversified economies, and manufacturing makes up a stronger base of their economy than it would say in BC. So, and we sort of suspect the manufacturing sector spends more on R&D and innovation, generally speaking. So we think that there would be sort of a diversified economy, they're larger, the sort of structural makeup of the economy there may improve some of their innovation benchmarking. Um, they've also attracted a lot of investment into some key sectors. So I mean, we all know Quebec with aerospace, uh, some defense, of course, uh, the AI supercluster and kind of some of the AI research and work that's taking place. You look at Ontario with advanced manufacturing, things like quantum computing, um, life sciences. There are some key sectors where they, they've invested, but they also have scale and scope 
to kind of leverage that investment. So we know they've done well uh, for, for a number of reasons. The top countries for us, though, when we do the benchmarking every couple of years, it's the Scandinavian countries, Sweden, Denmark, Switzerland, Finland, the U.S., those countries tend to do very well. And interestingly, the Scandinavian countries tend to invest well in the kind of public R&D side, so government funding, et cetera. The U.S. tends to be more bullish sort of in the business spending and VC and ICT adoption. But both of those regions, they get a lot of innovation output. They generate a lot of value from taking kind of a different approach. You know, U.S. being more business-centric and the Scandinavian countries really leveraging that public investment for good. Those different approaches that have been taken. Um, I think the, the things that stand out in both, uh, in, in kind of all those regions, frankly, there's a commitment to some key sectors where they have strength, absolutely. And they do a lot of direct business innovation expense. So businesses spending money on innovation. Uh, and that can include public sector funds going into the businesses in places like Sweden and Switzerland, but they just seem to to be had be more business led than we have been in Canada. So Paul, uh, in this case here, we're about a year out now from the last provincial election. Your data, of course, wouldn't yet reflect uh, where um, where the province has gone and all this, but what would be your instinct about um, about the indices and uh, what we might be able to expect, say, in a year's time when we have a full year of a new provincial government and its relationship to this sector? Yeah, what I'd, what I'd really look toward is their, their committed investments into things like public R&D, into the academic institutions. What's their investment around things like the mix of indirect support for business in funding versus direct support for business R&D funding. So I would look at the programs they're going to offer and what they do over the next couple of years and how that's going to play through. I think it's early days yet to know. Um, certainly, if, you've, if commodity prices continue to increase and G- your GDP base will grow, of course, um, well, are the business expenditures in innovation, as ICT expenditures, are they going to climb as fast as GDP growth does as oil and gas if the price continues to come up, for example, or as other commodity prices rise? So I think it's a mix of what the economy does, absolutely, um, but you really need to look at the programming. And I, I frankly think it's early days yet to know um, what type of investments have or how that's going to flow through. I'm sure if you could figure it out right now, then uh, the province would love to get a hold of your brain and extract all that from you. But uh, uh, Paul, I want to thank you for joining us on the show today. Yes, thank you for having me, guys, and all the best. Thank you very much. That's uh, Paul Preston. He's Director of Science, Technology, and Innovation Policy at the Conference Board of Canada. Ken Peacock, the Chief Economist at the Business Council of BC, is going to join us next to discuss the province's manufacturing sector. Stay with us here with BIV Today. BC's manufacturing sector has quietly spent the last decade turning into one of the top performing sectors across the province. Over the past five years alone, growth in manufacturing sales, it's been the strongest in Canada after Prince Edward Island. And our next guest has recently penned a piece examining how manufacturing has been taking off here on the West Coast. I'd like to welcome back to the show Ken Peacock. He's a chief economist and a vice president over at the Business Council of British Columbia. Ken, great to have you back on the show. Good to be here. Thank you. So we're actually adding jobs here in BC when it comes to manufacturing, unlike other jurisdictions that we hear about across North America. 
What's, I guess, the secret that we've got here on the West Coast? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. It is interesting. It's a little bit counterintuitive because you do hear many stories about sort of really that. affordable living. Is that what you're going to yeah, say? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, about downsizing manufacturing. Um, a, a couple things going on. I, I, for sort of um, analytical purposes, I like to delineate between sort of land-based, resource-oriented uh, uh, manufacturing products that come out of the resources that we extract here in British Columbia and other for lack of a better term, sort of non-resource manufacturing. On the resource side, uh, the global economy continues to strengthen and commodity prices have been quite strong. So that's providing a boost. U.S. housing starts are continuing to recover and a lot of metal, uh, mineral products, and as well as coal prices are elevated. So that really has given the whole resource sector a lift and, and, and you do see that in the data. But there is this other piece, the non-resource manufacturing sector, that's also growing quite robustly. Uh, this is a range of everything from machinery and equipment to food products to uh, electronic products to plastics. A lot of that's located in the lower mainland, but it is spread out around BC. And this sector, too, the, the sort of broad category has also enjoyed a strong growth in both sales activity and we employment growth as well. Because we don't tend to think of ourselves uh, initially in British Columbia as a manufacturing base, Ken. We're, no, no. we're largely considered to be the ones that ship the products abroad. They come through us, but they don't actually get generated here. Right, right. Uh, that That's true. We are not well known for manufacturing at all. You think manufacturing, you think Ontario and Quebec. And indeed, yeah. if you look at the employment and GDP numbers, of course, the, the sector in those provinces is larger. But if you look at the, the sort of proportional hit, uh, hit, you will, if you will, the, the, the sort of decline in manufacturing employment, it's been bigger in in Ontario and Quebec, it hasn't been massive. It's not it's not uh, not as large as the U.S. But it's skewed by things like the auto sector. It is it is skewed. But the the decline in employment has been bigger. So we've sort of had this more resilient manufacturing sector. I think in part because we're not competing head to head with China in the same way that Ontario and Quebec might be uh, auto auto parts and some of these other spaces or northern United States or northern United yeah yes northern yeah, United yeah, States yeah, yeah. exactly that's also seen. Uh, our, our sort of core in Canada manufacturing sector being hit by exactly like you say, northern U.S. So does that mean that post-recession, those economies in central Canada are also much harder hit and it took them that much longer to recover? I'm just wondering about like why we're getting this massive growth maybe just in the last decade, and which I think kind of lines up during this post-recession era. Yeah, I, I think proportionally they have been more hit than it's something that you see Stephen Polo as the governor of the Bank of Canada uh, concerned about. And he has talked about uh, those jobs that were lost in the in the wake of the financial crisis, uh, some plants closing down, something, some relocating for, for cost reasons. And they've never returned. I, he's, he's said this yeah. repeated. They're, they're not coming back. They haven't come back yet. And they're not likely to come back. So they are going through a bit more of a structural adjustment than we have here. Uh, our structural adjustment isn't, is kind of longer term, particularly in the, in the resource product sector, uh, and cyclical. So you, so you do see these cycles, uh, around the commodity prices, global commodity uh, environment. But if you're looking at employment, the interesting thing is if you're looking at employment, because of automation and improved productivity, the employment numbers over a couple decades are down 
although they are up in the past five years, which is we were talking about earlier. Um, but output continues to, to grow, and this is because of productivity and investment in machinery and equipment and, and similar things. Are we starting to see already, though, um, a dampening of the climate here for manufacturing by virtue of combination of provincial measures, things like payroll taxes? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I don't think that the minimum wage issue would quite hit the manufacturing sector, but uh, and then the American... Uh, declines in uh, corporate income, uh, corporate taxes that, that yeah. are coming aboard. Um, are we going to start to see perhaps a bit of a threat of exodus? Something, something we are definitely concerned about. Uh, there's this sort of this, this, these cumulative impacts, a number, a number of tax changes, uh, some some challenges on the regulatory and permitting uh, environment uh, space. There, it does make it more difficult. And then, of course, Kurt, you allude to the, the Trump tax changes that have made the U.S significantly more competitive when organizations and companies are looking to deploy capital. And in, in the Trump tax case of the Trump tax cuts, uh, the fact that you can now expense capital in, in a single year is yeah. very, very significant. Wow, and so yeah. we're, we're looking at and monitoring the, sort of the investment climate quite closely and trying to get a sense of that, sort of what, where the investment flows are going, if they're kind of drying up a little bit here or is not. Is at least that depreciation piece something that we could achieve here in this province without really scuttling our own finances? Yeah, we it's something we look at the business council and we have we have press for that. The the challenge is it's federal territory or yeah, it's federal yeah. jurisdiction more than provincial. So we encourage and have pressed the provincial government to work in conjunction with the federal government to look at accelerating some of these uh, capital investments, depreciate in, the, in one year, make it more attractive to deploy capital here. Sure, and I don't think that the fiscal hit to that would be too significant, particularly if... Uh, you're getting capital that would not have been deployed anyway by uh, altering the, the taxes. Well, and, and the capital, uh, capital kind of keeps people here. Uh, oh, absolutely. You have <laughs> yeah, to. You have yeah. to have investment. I, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And this is one of our challenges. If you look at what we invest on a poor worker basis, uh, BC we do okay vis-a-vis Canada, uh, Ontario, and Quebec. We're kind of in line. But if you compare what we invest on a poor worker basis with the U.S. We're, we invest about 50 or 60% of the level of what mm. is invested uh, for mm. an individual worker in the U.S. That's a significant gap. That's why their productivity is higher down there. They also have uh, significantly larger firms on average. They tend to be more productive and probably get more capital investment as a result of that. I don't want to pretend like I'm still living like five years ago, but one of the big winners from the HST was supposed to be the manufacturing sector. Uh, hypothetically, if we, maybe if it's not called HST, maybe it's some sort of new value-added tax, which we do have, say, business organizations still pitching every once in a while. Could we imagine that we would see a big boost to the manufacturing sector if we had something like that return, resurface here in BC? It's a great question. I, I, I probably wouldn't say a, a big boost, but no doubt about it. it would ha- it would absolutely help. It would help uh, in investment in general. And, and the reason for that is uh, just PST gets levied on business inputs. Now I'll come back to the manufacturing sector. There are some nuances around the manufacturing sector that should be noted. But essentially, PST gets applied on business inputs. That means the cost of anything that you use in your business has an additional 7% on it. The HST uh, remove that in that businesses paid it, but then were rebated it. And so it made the, the cost of operating and running a business in the province less under the HST. And the loss of the HST is a significant impact for competitiveness. And it does hurt um, 
that sort of at, at the margin, what companies would invest. So I would expect if we did see some sort of value added tax come to British Columbia, it would absolutely help the manufacturing sector. Because there's almost no other way to navigate through the inconsistency here, is there? Sorry, the inconsistency and in the application. Uh, of oh, ta- yeah, of yeah, yeah. It's very, it's very, it was very random. There's arbitrary rules. Absolutely, it seems as if every single jurisdiction in the world has figured that out, yeah, uh, other yeah. than BC. But uh, yeah, we, we like <laughs> to be different. Yeah. Now I should just note on the manufacturing, manufacturing, um, processing of natural resources, and manufacturing, the capital equipment for those operations is exempt from the PST, which is something that the government put in place uh, a while ago, then it was expanded to cover not just resources, but other manufacturing sectors. Still, there's a whole bunch of other inputs that go into business operations besides machinery, equipment, administrative, you know, phone calls, whatever, but telephone systems, uh, other other things as well. So the HST would still be a benefit uh, to the manufacturing sector. Uh, Hopefully you can also maybe square up something in my mind that I'm still unclear about because we've seen job growth going on, but we also bring up the fact that, say, automation is making us a little bit more competitive, are we expecting that maybe job growth would slow as automation you know, takes hold more and more? Yeah, this is we're talking a lot about this around our shop these days. Uh, opinions divided. There's a, a number of economists and labor market people out there kind of ringing alarm bells that this automation, particularly artificial intelligence, is going to have a huge impact on employment levels here in BC or in North America, uh, in advanced economies. And of course, we're worried about that here in BC. Some people are. I'm less concerned i see this automation as not sort of displacing that many jobs in a lot of instances it augments employment and what people do just sort of have to shift and i certainly don't think in the next 10 or 12 or 15 years you're going to see massive displacement so, so were you one of the guys in the camp that was uh, skeptical of the idea of the paperless office and uh, <laughs> and and the computer and computers basically giving us four-day work weeks yeah yeah I, I, i'll claim i'll claim i'll claim okay, being in that good. camp no, i'm not sure i was exactly you're st- there at you're the staying time. consistent yeah yeah, okay, yeah. oh yeah the, the paperless office has more paper than ever yeah um so so the uh yeah, the the, auto, the automation piece. The, the thing to remember about automation, I mean, it, I think it does frighten some people a little bit. But when you invest in capital equipment and make a, an operation more productive, you actually are helping to guarantee jobs. Yes, it might cost you a couple jobs, but by being competitive and being able to compete in global marketplaces, and I, I'm talking about exports because man, most manufacturing products are exported to other jurisdictions. It's just that the vulnerability of some of those working in the manufacturing sector is such that they're not necessarily the initial candidates for reskilling, retraining. And there aren't really many government programs yet in place to help people move along. And there aren't any industry programs of any great scale either to right. do that. Right. So people, I think, feel quite correctly left a bit to their own devices. Uh, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it depends a little bit what we're, we're talking about here. I, I mean, yeah, I'm, sure. I'm there, thinking, there are some, but I mean, yeah. sure. There are some and there's more difficult ones to retrain if, if you've done sort of a very narrow specific job for a long period of time. But I think a lot of the manufacturing sector here it has smaller players in it. Um, and so people may be somewhat more nimble. Uh, but my comment about the necessity of having capital equipment, uh, perhaps the starkest example is the Rio Tinto Alcan plant. So that, w- that was interesting to watch that unfold. Uh, I was talking about investment levels per worker a while back, but that Rio Tinto investment in the aluminum smelter up in, up in Kitimat, the upgrading of their facility there, 
uh, you saw a big spike in investment. And if you measured on a per worker basis, it actually was significant enough to bring us up in line with the U.S. Now it was mm-hmm. one plant, so it wasn't broadly based. But it just sort of speaks to the notion of you, if, if you get additional capital, we can uh, deploy it here in BC. We can get up to levels uh, that we see in the U.S. But in that instance, uh, there were f- workers laid off, but that investment basically secured the life of that facility for, for a couple decades out anyway and made it much more competitive. And the aluminum market globally is a very, very tough business right now. So without that investment, I would think that facility probably would have shut down. Yeah. So, you know, automation is a net- necessary creature. Hmm. It's just that you have to also manage the redeployment of people in their reskilling somehow to make sure that they're not just totally tossed. You know, and I, I, th- I think that's a great point. I think that's one of the lessons that's that's coming out of this whole uh, rise in global trade and the, the rise of China is, is, yes, there was benefits to consumers through the reduction of price and increased trade, but there were these displaced workers. And I, and I think the evidence is coming out that perhaps if there was better attention paid to retraining and redeploying them in other sectors, there would not be this underlying tension, particularly in the U.S. that you see. Well, excellent. Ken, always a pleasure speaking to you. I want to thank you for joining us on the program today. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. That's Ken Peacock, Chief Economist of the Business Council of British Columbia. And thanks a lot for listening to BIV Today today. Um, to all your friends to give us uh, five stars on iTunes uh, when when you're subscribing. And meanwhile, you can find our stories, of course, in print and online at BIV.com. 